This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. How does the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs seek to enhance the veterans' experience? What has it done to modernize its logistics, supply chain, construction, and leasing functions? What emerging technologies hold the most promise to enhancing VA's procurement and acquisition functions? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Karen Brazell former Chief Acquisition Officer at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Karen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Michael. So, Karen, just to give some context about your time at VA, could you give us an overview of the mission of the Office of Enterprise Integration within the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs? Uh, Michael, so OEI's mission is to orchestrate and lead the continuous improvement um, of veteran and, and employee experience through effective enterprise integration of people, processes, technology, innovation, and then maturing that organizational management capability. Um, for example, for the department, um, leading the strategic and future foresight, we're doing strategic the strategic planning, integrating all the plans into uh, the one for the department, um, doing inter- integrated enterprise planning, policy management, research, uh, and analysis. Um, I also would say that we do a lot of interagency coordination and collaboration with our federal partners, specifically the Department of Defense. Um, there's a lot of collaboration that we're doing, not uh, not in, in addition to the electronic health record modernization, but ensuring that um, we're consistent with uh, policies that the Department of Defense may be putting in place and that may have some um, uh, responsibility at the Department of Veterans Affairs. We also work with the house, uh, Housing and Urban Development Commerce. And then specifically, uh, things that I had been involved with was the transformation and innovation um, Data analytics and statistics, that is huge for OEI. That is a really big mission of ours. And um, the Office of Data Governance and and Analysis, which we refer to as DGA, and that is led by the department's chief data officer, uh, Shamindra Paul. Now, they're responsible for providing that data management, that data analysis, and that business intelligence capabilities to inform uh, the VA-wide decision-making. And they are the authoritative clearinghouse for the collection analysis analysis, and dissemination of statistics about veterans and VA programs. And they also provide actual services and data-driven forecast capabilities. Um, Again, it's to inform that decision-making within the department. Very important, good context, important mission. So, Karen, what were your key duties while you were at VA? Sure. Um, 
my my job that I got hired into um, was to be the principal executive director for the Office of Acquisition, Logistics, and Construction and the chief acquisition office uh, officer. Um, so my primary role was uh, the advisor to the secretary and the deputy secretary on all matters pertaining to VA acquisition, uh, logistics and construction management programs, practices, applicable laws and regulations. Um, and specifically, I oversaw a $27 billion uh, budget in acquisition spend and almost $2 billion in annual construction expenditures. Now within my, uh, I'll I'll just say CAO, Chief Acquisition Officer role. Um, I was directly responsible for three major organizational elements. So you have the Office of Acquisition and Logistics, which is responsible for all departmental um, policy um, development, implementation, compliance, logistics operations, um, and, and contracting activities to include our VA Acquisition Academy, where we do train all the contracting professionals, program managers, logisticians, uh, facility management um, personnel. Then we also had the Office of Acquisition Operations. Now, that was responsible for department-wide acquisition, contracting, contract administration. That's where um, you have our Technology Acquisition Center, or the TAC, the National Acquisition Center, or the NAC, and the Strategic Acquisition Center, also, you know, or the SAC. And then we, I also had the Office of Construction and Facility Management, which was responsible for all major construction and lease projects for the department. And I'm talking the planning, the activities, the purchasing of the land, design, construction activities, uh, facility sustainability, seismic corrections, uh, physical security, and historic preservation. And Karen, as you reflect on your time at VA, what were some of the key challenges you faced in your most recent role? Well, when I started August 6th of 2018, um, within my first couple of meetings and interaction uh, with the folks when I was just like, hey, I need to understand what are all the um, active um, initiatives that we have going on. And I realized quickly that we lacked requirements. Now, I'm a program manager by training. Uh, I'm a former Navy program manager. We, we didn't have requirements. We had no governance and oversight. Um, one of the big challenges I noticed was that we just had too many silos. I mean, we had three administrations where we were siloed in addition to the staff offices. And I can see that happening when you've got a, a, the department as, as big as the um, VA, which is about 400,000 employees without that centralized leadership oversight. And I, I have to say under Secretary Robert Wilkie's leadership, he broke down those silos. One of the things he did is um, in addition to his um, meetings with the senior leaders, and I say that being more of the political leaders, uh, he instituted a biweekly, what we call a VA operations board, and that's chaired by the deputy secretary, where you have representation, the chief financial officer, the chief information officer, the chief acquisition officer, your chief um, experience officer and your uh, chief human capital officer, we were responsible for providing updates on all the major initiatives and as well as socializing any department-wide business process changes, directives, and policies. I have to give a shout out to Phil Christie, my deputy, and Angela Billups. She is um, the senior procurement executive for the department. They did a lot to help me break down those communication barriers and build what I call a more robust program management um, approach to all acquisition strategies. So Karen, you identified some of the challenges, but I was wondering what has surprised you most during your time at VA? I would say how important change management was to implementing anything from a new technology, which uh, we're, we're 
they're actively doing three major business system um, um, transformations, but in, even just strategy processes. And I say that um, be, because it is building that relationship with um, the administrations and staff offices, uh, as well as building that consensus. Um, one of the approaches I always used was, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about you and it's not about me, Michael, but it's about that veteran improving the healthcare, the benefits, um, the burial services, those experiences for our veterans. So that's very interesting. There's surprising elements, but you know, Karen, as you closed your career, you retired, as you mentioned, uh, January 20th, what was the most exciting and enriching part of your time at VA? Challenging that status quo and providing the department's 12,000 acquisition professionals with the tools, policies, and procedures they needed to be innovative when it comes to acquisition strategies. Um, I have to say of of my leaders, uh, Michelle Foster was the number one that I viewed as the uh, cutting edge of doing the those agile type acquisition strategies. Um, and there's oftentimes um, when I would um, attend, uh, Angela Billups and I, we were very involved with the training of our acquisition professionals, ensuring that you know they had the tools, the tools in their toolkit that they needed to be successful. And we would hear oftentimes from them that, well, you know, you guys put out policy at the department level, but then within VAJ, VBA, or NCA, they all have policy. Then we get down to our individual regions and we had policy and they go, we just don't know what policy to follow. And we wanted to make sure that we streamline those policies and procedures so that our acquisition professionals could be the ones leaning forward, uh, looking at those acquisition strategies. And one of the things I did, uh, I would say I, I challenged them a lot to do is when you get a customer gives you a requirement, don't go out there and start to, you know, initiate a brand new market research and, and start a brand new acquisition strategy. Look currently at what contracts um, we have within the department, or are there other opportunities we can leverage from other federal partners? And, and, and Michael, I have to say, my mantra was always help me get to yes. That's legal, moral, and ethical. I did not take no. I would just say help me get to yes. So, Karen, would you tell us more about yourself and your career path? Well, I started my federal government career as a private in the United States Army. I served four years on active duty. Um, I achieved the rank of E5 in two years and uh, married the love of my life and got out after four years. And while I was in the military, I was a soldier, a spouse, and a brand new mother. Um, And then after I transitioned from the Army, I used my veterans education assistance Uh, program, also known as VEAP back in the day, to go back and earn my associates, my bachelor's, and a few courses towards my master's degree. Again, all working full-time, being a military spouse and a mother. I spent 17 years in industry as a government contractor before returning back to the federal government service as a Navy program manager. Then I had the opportunity to be selected as the chief of staff for the White House military office. And then in my final service to um, the government, was being the principal executive director and chief acquisition officer um, for uh, the the department. And I officially retired from the federal government on January 20th. And, and so given your career, both uh, in the services and in federal service, what characteristics make one an effective leader and what leadership principles guide your efforts? 
Well, I have three characteristics that um, I laid the groundwork for when I came uh, to the department with my uh, senior executives. First and foremost, integrity, doing the right thing, ensuring that my actions are moral, ethical, and legal, and accountability. Um, make my I make my expectations known, but first and foremost, you have to be accountable to yourself, then to your team, and to the taxpayers. And the last one is empowerment. I believe in ensuring that your our team members have the tools and trainings required to be innovative. Um, um, I call them entrepreneurs so to bring the solutions, uh, because at the end of the day, though those. Those team members are going to be the future leaders in your organization. And then my leadership principles that guide me are leading by example. Don't be afraid to roll up your sleeves when needed. Walk the talk, not do as I, not, not do as I say, not as I do. Uh, communicate early and often with your teams. I think that's very important. Um, uh, communication is, um, I would say that breaking down those silos within the department was top down, bottom up, and across the organization. And then admitting your mistakes and owning them. And last, create a an environment where employees can thrive and bring innovation. How has VA used category management? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center this week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. What is ruthless consistency, and how can it make you a better leader? Why should we jettison strategic planning and pursue strategic management? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Michael Kanick, author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. Michael, uh, we are in the midst of a, of a pandemic response, and um, how important is ruthless consistency for leaders during today's crisis? Yeah, and this is very important. Having that ruthless consistency of purpose is even more important now and you have to be even more painstaking in being consistent. Why? Because people are anxious. Your people are confused, right? They're not sure what's going to happen. None of us know what's going to happen. So it's especially important you're consistent in communicating with your people. And the term I like to use, Michael, is to over-communicate during times of change or over-communicate during times of crisis. Because people need to know, you know, not just where are we going, not just how, but why. Why are we changing to this? What does it mean for me? How are we going to support you? We need to be ruthlessly consistent in valuing people and making sure they know we appreciate them. They're playing a valuable role, right? They belong. They're doing something that's meaningful. It's especially important we're consistent in valuing people now. And it's especially important that we're consistent in providing people with the tools and the information to do the job. Because the anxiety is people's roles have had to shift. Maybe they're doing some things, they have to do some different things than before. Maybe some of the things they used to do have gone away. So we've got to make sure we're very consistent in providing people whatever tools and information they need given the new reality. 
So in times of change, Michael, ruthless consistency is even more important because if you don't do that, you risk demotivating people who are already anxious, already confused, and now, then you end up with a very bad situation. Michael, once again, you're, you lay out a concept called ruthless consistency, but you also recognize that there needs to be practical application of, it, of this concept. So you know, strategy is not an execution plan. So how best can we translate our strategy into an actionable execution plan? Yeah, that's very good. Often I'll ask companies, you know, show me your strategic plan. And they'll show me a plan and say, great, so how do you manage this? How do you manage the execution of it? And they'll point to the plan and they'll say, well, we do this. We talk about this. And my response is, well, talking about it or revisiting it doesn't do anything unless there's an execution plan. And think of it like project management. There needs to be a clear, what are we trying to achieve with this particular strategy? Who's the champion of the strategy? Who's on the team? What are the time-linked milestones we have to hit to make this happen? What are the resource requirements to hit each of those milestones? What's our uh, projected return on strategy that warrants all this effort? So this is project management. There's got to be an ongoing project management process. The execution plan is simply a, it might be a a two-page document that captures those key points. That's what you're managing monthly. You're not looking at that overall strategic plan and say, let's talk about this. You're managing towards those time-linked milestones in your execution plan. So we have to take that so-called strategic plan, translate it into the execution plan. That's what's actionable. To create the right environment, Michael, why must leaders be coaches and not just managers? Well, simply put, coaches take responsibility for the performance of their people. Coaching, a coaching mindset is, what do I need to do to help my people perform at their best? What buttons do I need to push? What things do I need to put in place? What levers do I need to pull to help each of my people perform at their best? Coaches take responsibility. And, you know, managers often will just say, well, here's your job, go do it. I'll come back in a year and we'll evaluate your performance in a year. Well, that's not coaching and that's not even managing, frankly, but that's what many managers do. So imagine a, imagine a football game. The beginning of the game, coach runs onto the field with the team. The band is playing. The fans are cheering. The coach runs out onto the field. And then the coach turns around and runs off the field. And he comes back at the end of the game to tell the team how well they did or didn't do. Well, that would be a pretty silly way to engage your team. But that's what we do in business, right? We're disengaged from people. Coaches take responsibility. So two people are responsible for the performance of people. It's the people have to perform. The coach needs to create the environment that enables them to perform. And I'll tell you, the other thing is that good coaches realize that not every player, not every team member responds the same way to the same approach. Coaches are very adaptive to the needs of their different team members to help them perform their best. More information on this and other centered resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org 
to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center report responding to global health crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Karen Brazell, former Chief Acquisition Officer at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Karen, I was wondering if you could highlight for us your the key priorities you were pursuing while you were leading VA's Office of Enterprise Integration. The Secretary had um, five uh, major priorities that we, I say we, um, his leadership team, the administrations and all the staff office aligned to. That's first and foremost, customer service. The veteran is our customer number one, everything we do. And then it was the Mission Act, implementation of the Mission Act, um, electronic health record modernization, business uh, systems transformation, and suicide prevention. So as the chief acquisition officer, I was involved um, with all those modernization programs because they came across the acquisition platforms. In in addition that my acquisition team uh, provided the contract contract administration for those uh, contracts. And um, we did very well. Even with COVID in 2020, we were able to um, implement um, the electronic health record modernization. Uh, The first was the centralized scheduling solution at the Columbus uh, VA Medical Center. And then we um, initiated our first rollout of VHRM at Spokane, um, Washington at the medical center there. And we implemented um, the supply chain modernization, also known as DEMLS, the Defense Medical Logistics Standard support at the Federal uh, Healthcare Center in uh, North Chicago. We were able to, and then that's the joint DOD um, VA facility. And um, the financial management business transformation, we implemented that um, in uh, November with the cemetery uh, group. We went first with them um, with the finance and the acquisition portal of it. uh, Because if, if you realize, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but with the financial and the logistic systems at the VA, they're 30 years old. So when a contractor, uh, contracting officer awards a contract, it's not like it hits the financial system immediately and um, shows an obligation. It, w- it, it can take up to 10 business days. So you didn't have real-time data. Same with the, the logistic systems. And um, the pandemic uh, really showed the need for having a, um, a modernized logistic system when they, the logisticians were reporting daily on PPE utilization, medical surgical uh, supply capabilities or availabilities. They did not have that visibility if you could go into a system and you could look across the 170 uh, medical centers and determine what your uh, needs would be based on where the pandemic uh, was increasing, where we were having you know uh, more positive cases. Um, and then in, in OEI was, I was the integrator. I was the integrator of all that modernization. Um, I also I, I like to tell everybody I was like the um, air traffic controller, uh, making sure that 
everybody was coming to the table, bringing all the stakeholders to the table, making sure that the program offices were communicating um, when it talks about implementation. You know, I talked about that change management. That change management was key to all modernization. And um, it's not something that you just do one time. It's throughout that whole process. I mean, these programs have an entire life cycle to them. You know, from the time you have the requirement to um, to when you would eventually sunset that either program, um, that building, the facility, that lease, or that contract. So, you know, to provide proper context, would you describe for us the acquisition lifecycle at VA? Sure. So this initiative was developed by Angela Billups, uh, the senior procurement executive. So the acquisition lifecycle framework, or ALF, um, is, is the integrated end-to-end lifecycle focus when we're planning the strategic approach for expending appropriated funds to fill mission needs. So it starts with the concept of need. That's, that's what um, we were, I say the goal, because it, it aligns perfectly with a program management approach. So what is the need? Um, you know, is it um, healthcare? Is it benefits? Is it burial services for our, our veterans? And what are the critical success factors required for that uh, life cycle management to include the integrating of any of the VA support lines of business, that being acquisition, finance, information technology, and human resources? That wasn't happening before. Somebody would come in with um, an, an idea or new technology, a new business process. And because I, I talked about those silos, they would execute them within that silo silo, but we, we wouldn't, for example, if it's technology, you've got to bring in the CIO before you're putting anything on that network. There's vulnerabilities. You've got to go through those cybersecurity um, um, reviews. And acquisition, I, I reminded all the folks when I came on board, all the senior leaders, there's an acquisition process pretty much to everything you folks do. And you've got to bring the acquisition professionals in, um, just like you got to bring your procurement lawyers in. You don't wait till you have an acquisition strategy and you're already moving out and then they tell you you can't do it. You bring all the stakeholders in up front and you discuss um, what is the best approach to achieving that mission need. So very important context leading to my next question. I'd like to explore VA's focus on enhancing uh, its customer experience, which is the veterans' experience in particular. Would you tell us more about what went on during your time at VA to improve the veteran experience? Well, specifically in the acquisition lifecycle, that was a new initiative that uh, Linda Davis and Barbara Morton from the Veterans Experience Office had came um, to myself, Phil Christie and Angela Billups. And they said, part of our, our, our job is to capture and analyze the voices of the veteran, their families, caregivers, and survivors in healthcare services, benefits, and um, burial services. So bringing in the veteran or a caregiver or a spouse as a stakeholder is key. And and you and I I've, I look at that two ways. You've got the you've you're getting the buy-in, but at the same time you're making them part of that process. When they're part of that process, there's ownership there. But at the same time, is we may not understand their needs or uh, their requirements uh, from a care caregiver's point of view or from a veteran's point of view. So bringing those folks in to help um, when it comes to designing, say, for example, designing a hospital or um, putting in a um, um, 
the electronic health record modernization, bringing the veteran in and hearing from them talk about carrying around stacks and stacks of medical records, where now um, from the time the service member, you know, takes the oath of office until they transition out of the military, that medical record now is going to be seamless. It's not going to be stacks and stacks of paperwork that they're taking uh, with them. Benefits. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's too hard to fill out all these paperwork just to get a home loan. Those are those are the type of things that we bring the veterans in to get to get their feedback because it's a continuous improvement process. Um, I also will say on the OEI side, one of the things we did this past year is we did uh, we um, conducted our first ever customer experience survey to obtain feedback from our customers and stakeholders uh, to help inform uh, the organization for opportunities um, for improvement. And we went out to federal partners to do this. So as a follow-up, Karen, how did VA during your time there leverage data and analytics to enhance the veterans' experience? Well, again, it goes back to that direct feedback from our veterans through their journey uh, from transitioning from the military when they apply uh, for benefits or services to a caregiver's experience, and then building the tools that deliver that veterans' um, experience and then the products for our health administration and staff offices through, uh, specifically, that would be the patient experience portal. And they have a similar portal on the benefits side uh, that provides that continuous process loop. Now, data analytics um, has, uh, has um, does provide the VA those opportunities to, um, to leverage medical care based on um, Tracking the veterans, you know, uh, I would say the demographics. It's very important to understand the demographics, especially now. Now, COVID has been one where the demographics have have really helped um, our medical professionals be able to um, hone in. Like, if if they're seeing a um, an increase of uh, COVID positives in a certain region or certain state or certain location of the country, that, that those data analytics now can provide uh, um, the um, tools and the analysis that they need to look at the veteran community. Do we have an aging uh, population here? Do they have uh, some of the COVIDities? Now's the time to start reaching out to those veterans to make sure that they have their um, medicine, the equipment that they need so that we can protect them where they wouldn't have to be exposed. And um, it has really allowed, uh, again, our, our, our clinicians to do some uh, predictive analysis. So, Karen, we go from focusing on the veterans experience to how VA procured goods and services and the use of category management. First, what is category management? How did you use it within VA? And perhaps you could illustrate the areas in which it has been used well, also identifying some of the benefits and challenges associated with using category management. Sure. So category management is an Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, directive initiative, and and that's per OMB 1913. And it's to help the federal government buy smarter. So it's a commercial best practice of buying common goods and services to increase efficiency, reduce costs, minimize redundancy, and deliver more value. Now, I was never familiar with something called the all-employee survey until I joined the VA. And in the 2018, 2019, and the 2020 results, the acquisition community says, you know, it's our workload. 
we've just got too much of a workload. And category management is going to help um, those uh, contracting specialists, those uh, procurement specialists buy smarter. So rather than like someone brings a requirement, rather than immediately launching on that requirement, take a step back, look at what contracts or acquisition strategies and tools are already there for me? Is there another federal partner that we could uh, leverage? Um, for for example, our technology acquisition center, they leverage a lot of the NASA soup contracts. And that um, helped us tremendously during COVID when we had an increase of telehealth and um, we needed to buy, um, and, 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 and our, of course our folks being on um, uh, telework, we were able to purchase um, bulk IT uh, through that contract. Um, and, and, and each year the VA obligates about 25 billion on goods and services. But we miss the, many times we miss that opportunity to avoid costs when we don't leverage the collective buying power of the federal government. And, and, it, and it's gonna reduce the um, dupl duplicative contracts uh, so that we can get the economies of scale, the quality assurance, the standardization that we need. And again, it's that unleveraged buying. Unmanaged spend results in higher prices, longer lead times, duplicate awards, and limits the federal government purchasing power. Before we move on from category management, any insights on how VA could expand its use? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, it starts with training the acquisition professionals. I, I say our acquisition and, and our uh, logisticians because um, market research is where we always um, direct our acquisition professionals to uh, first, you know, in accordance with FAR Part 10. Um, what's the market telling you of where you can get those supplies um, and, and goods? But at the same time, making sure that we have um, we at the VA have a one-stop, what I call that one-stop shop portal where it will provide those um, answers to those questions. And, and a Angela Billups, she implemented this past um, uh, April of 2020, she implemented the Acquisition Knowledge Portal. Uh, we refer to it as the AKP. And it provides the VA acquisition professional with the tools and resources they need um, to reduce contracts, leverage best-in-class acquisition strategies of our federal partners. It provides um, the direct resources to the VA um, acquisition regulation, the VA acquisition manual, uh, links to the FAR. It even has the training that you're required based on your um, occupational skill, whether you're a contracting specialist, you're a program manager, you're a core, uh, your facility professional, facility management professional. Everything now was in that one portal where before it, I, I call it, it was just like a hodgepodge of um, various places the acquisition professional would go, not to mention, you know, it was word of mouth. Now we direct everybody to one tool. We have the consistency um, in ensuring that folks are, are leveraging that better buying power. So Karen, earlier you mentioned the acquisition lifecycle framework. Alf, um, I'd like to ask you, how does it help VA's acquisition workforce? I'll say this, Michael. So ALF implements a disciplined, repeatable, and comprehensive methodology uh, that's designed to manage that end-to-end -end life cycle of a program and project uh, from the need identification to the closeout. Um, again, it's, it's that entire life cycle, which 
when I came to VA and um, Angela came to VA, we saw that folks would focus on their component specialty, where Angela and I would constantly explain to the folks that the acquisition lifecycle is huge. It's not just contracting. It's not just IT. It's not just finance. Um, it's everybody involved in that process and contracting, lifecycle logistics, sustainment, um, IT, finance, they're all components within that life cycle. And that's what was key, why it was key to have, making sure that you have all the stakeholders at the table. And again, this framework um, provides those proven approaches for the planning and executing of programmatic um, methodologies. And it's that end-to-end -end life cycle focus to ensure the quality of our program and project management, contract execution, um, performance improvements, and sustainability. What emerging technologies hold the most promise to enhancing VA's procurement and acquisition functions? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Karen Brazell, former Chief Acquisition Officer at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. So, Karen, during your time at VA, what was the most challenging aspect of responding to this pandemic? Well, that's a great question. Um, I've had to explain that a couple times up on the Hill as well, but I mean, when you're dealing with it, I think a lot of people lose um, sight that this is a global pandemic. It's just not a regional state. It's the entire North America, but it's the entire globe. So when we were going out, and I say we, the department, uh, were contracting or attempting to purchase uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, or other medical surgical supplies, it's just not the VA coming to the table. I mean, you've got the whole world going to the same manufacturers and suppliers trying to uh, leverage um, um, their capabilities and making sure that you have it first. A uh, VA has 170 medical centers. Uh, yes, um, the COVID White House Task Force was put together. Um, HHS and FEMA led that effort, but VA had to make sure that the folks understood, we got 170 medical centers, folks. We've got to be part of these discussions. We've got to be part of the consideration, not to mention that the VA had that fourth mission where we were augmenting some of the community hospitals. So it, it was a team effort, and I have to uh, give kudos to Deb Kramer and Andrew Centineo, my VHA partners, uh, Dr. 
Rich Stone, uh, Steve Lieberman, we came together as a group. It wasn't um, the health administration and the acquisition. We worked as one team, one fight to make sure that we um, um, maximized uh, the global supply chain that was um, uh, really at risk. But uh, we did not have any issues with not meeting the PPE demands or medical uh, supplies and equipment for any of our medical centers. But this goes back to where I was talking about the logistics system. If we would have had a real-time integrated logistics system, we would have been able to um, cross-level supplies, be able to look at... uh, any given time on a computer, as you're seeing the COVID spike in certain regions to be able to say, hey, we need to, we need to move ventilators or, hey, we need to send over some additional masks or level two gowns. This was done a lot with um, stubby pencils, people reporting in three and four times a day. And I would say probably 90 days within to the pandemic, they were able to get a, at least a, um, an a somewhat automated uh, reporting system of a database. Karen, would you tell us more about the efforts to modernize VA's logistics and supply chain? What are some of the key challenges affecting VA system and how does the modernization work to ameliorate those issues? Well, Dr. Um, Rich Stone asked me probably about 18 months ago to serve as the program decision authority for the logistics and supply chain modernization. And at that time we were evaluating different systems which would fit the needs of um, the department. And and we have a lot of combat logisticians, veterans themselves that are on the healthcare side. I mentioned Deb Kramer, Andrew Centineo, and even Phil Christie, they're combat medical logisticians. And those three as well as some others said, I really think we need to look at the the Defense Health Agency's DEMLs, the Defense Medical Logistics Standards uh, Support. And we did, and and that was what we were fielding at the Federal Health uh, Care Center up in North Chicago. It had some starts and stops, but when I came on board, um, again, I'm coming in with a program management perspective. Uh, I've got the Secretary's priorities. I've got Dr. Stone as a very uh, great partner. It says, Karen, we've got to move this. We've got to move this. And a lot of it's just getting the stakeholders to the table and having everybody communicate, hearing everybody concerns, but at the end of the day, our goal was to implement that system. And we had needs. I mean, you got 30-year-old system where you can't provide real-time data for any of your 170 medical centers at one time. Dr. Stone did not have that visibility, uh, nor did the leadership at um, the VA central office here in D.C. So implementing that system is going to be a game changer for the department. Is it going to happen fast? Um, Probably not. I mean, this was a seven-year program, and I know we are looking at doing a three- to five-year, provided we get the funding um, from the Hill to make sure that we can um, implement that quickly. Karen, I'd like to move on from supply chain and logistics to construction and leasing. Would you tell us more about the business process improvements made to the construction and leasing award function within VA? And more importantly, what prompted these improvements? And perhaps you could elaborate on the progress thus far. Well, I have to give the credit to uh, Mike Brennan, who is the um, executive director for our construction and facility um, um, operations, and Tony Costa, who is his deputy. But again, when I came on board, Tony Costa and I came on board the very same day in April of 2018. And we had leases that had 
that were two and three years behind schedule that had not been awarded. And, and Tony came from um, GSA with a real property mindset. So, you know, I, I tasked Tony, you need to get these leases award, awarded and I need to understand, you know, what are the obstacles that we need to address in order to meet the, those timelines. Um, and what Tony did is he came in, he got the team together. I, again, it's part of the leadership, getting folks to take ownership in the process and understanding um, how they fit into the uh, mission of the organization. But what, what uh, Mike and Tony did is they um, aligned uh, this lease process with the private sector and other federal agencies to ensure we had that emphasis on standardization, increased competition, um, the cost savings and the speed to market. Um, so they were able to uh, put a new business process in place that reduced the uh, lease awards from years down to months. Um, in addition, we also this uh, past year transferred 11 Army cemeteries to the VA. They awarded 80% of the major construction planned awards and awarded 40 major leases, um, 12 minor leases. And um, just so you know that in 2019 and 2020, we exceeded the lease awards in the past prior five years at the department. So Karen, during your time at VA, how is the department leveraging or planning to leverage emerging technologies? Well, I, I do know that the department is um, leading the effort in 3D printing. Uh, and that and that's 3D printing for prosthetics. Um, some of the PPE that we were having difficulty um, uh, obtaining from the suppliers and manufacturers, the nasal swabs for conducting the COVID tests, innovation tubes. Uh, our Pacific Northwest team, we've got some great um, clinicians who are innovators leading uh, those initiatives and uh, providing those um, tools that our veterans need. Uh, on the acquisition side, we're, we're um, migrating to using bots. And of course, you know, that's, those are, are to help uh, streamline our um, acquisition processes. For example, we get an inquiry comes in and um, are there some legislation uh, change and we wanted to make sure, uh, say a specific clause was in a contract. What we used to do is we would have folks go through all the contracts, you know, try to do a search word, where if you use bots, machine learning, you can put those requirements in and you can go from what took weeks down to seconds. Um, or if you're uh, searching uh, for um, a specific vendor, yes, you can do searches in Microsoft Excel, you can import, export, but if you're looking for specific periods of time, um, contract awards for certain regions, certain medical center, you can use these bots from, you're taking that, I call it that human interface out of it, and you're doing those real-time, very quick searches. Karen, during your time at VA, how did you engage with industry to be successful? At various venues. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the type of leader I make myself approachable um, to, my, to the customers, to our industry, and to my team members. So any of the conferences I attended, um, I wanted to make sure that I took the time to meet with our vendors to hear them out. And I also um, had an open door policy to make sure that vendors uh, had an opportunity to come in um, and, and provide their capabilities. But one of the things I did put in place at the department um, in the last 12 months was a what I call a, it's, 
it's a reverse industry day. It's the first of the department. And it was important because I heard so many times from industry, Karen, you guys need to do better on your RFIs, your requests for information. You know, you put, you put something out like on a Thursday and then you want it back by Monday. And then we often do this sometimes over a holiday weekend and we're expecting industry to respond, but yet we're not giving them the time they need to um, properly prepare a proposal, or they expend a lot of money on a proposal, knowing that potentially, well, you, if you guys would have put that in in the um, your request for proposal, that specific requirement, we wouldn't have wasted all this time. Or potentially, we ask them for something that we know is non-existent, and then when they don't respond to it, and they respond uh, to a different technology, we hold them non-responsive. So it was a way to get feedback, honest and open feedback, where the VA was in the listening mode. And we allowed um, the industry partners to say, here's what we think you could do better. Because, Michael, the VA doesn't have all the answers. That's why we need our industry partners. I mean, you have 400,000 employees. You've got legislation um, re requirements that's being levied um, upon us. We need our industry partners to help solve. I mean, let's talk about electronic health record modernization. You know, DOD's doing it. Um, there's other best practices that we could leverage, but we just have to be open and receptive um, to industry and, and not viewing them as, oh, we can't talk to you. We have an open solicitation. Well, there's, there's ways that you can talk to everybody, um, but you've just got to make sure again that we're being um, transparent and that we're having that open and honest communication. Just, just a quick follow on, uh, you mentioned reverse industry days. Uh, Karen, how well were they received? It well received. We um, we held our first session just before Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, I want to say there was about 300 um, participants. Now, a good chunk of those, probably 50% was the VA, but I wanted to make sure that we had our acquisition and our community, our program managers, our facility professionals on the call so that they could hear from industry so that we could be better business partners. And then we had our second one, um, January 20th. That was the, I call it, that was my um, final farewell uh, industry day. And I do believe that Phil Christie and Angela Billups are going to continue those. That It's probably not going to be monthly. It may be in every other month, but, um, and they're even open to providing, uh, industry had asked us to consider a um, RFI tracker just so that the senior procurement executive, chief acquisition officer, the you know deputy principal executive director for OALC had visibility of what RFIs were going out there, so that we could we could help guide um, those folks within the department that may be putting RFIs out where we're like, you know, you're really not giving industry the time that they need to respond to this or um, help us develop better um, or improve our um, request for information. Uh, before we close, Karen, are there any other accomplishments or successes you would like to highlight? That's a great question. <laughs> and I'm actually, I, I, I got really quiet. Um, I think if anything, uh, folks would probably say what I remember Karen uh, from is she, she, she knew it was important to building coalitions, building those relationships, bringing all the stakeholders to the table um, so that we could discuss um, you know, the, uh, the typical, uh, what is it, storming, norming, forming, performing when you, you get teams together. Um, 
I always say that the first two takes a really long time within the VA because, again, you're, you're breaking down old cultural paradigms. Um, I'm very proud, though, of one of the accomplishments uh, I did along with Rich Stone, Deborah Shear, um, and some other of our partners where Baylor Scott and White donated a 400,000 square foot hospital in Garland, Texas to the VA. Now, this this happened Back July of 2019, Rich Stone, myself, and uh, some of his um, engineering specialists, we went down to Garland, we walked the hospital, and realized the medical center director at Dallas, and he was a big proponent of this. They they had folks in modulars, um, modular buildings that had been there many, many years. Um, They needed to be replaced, and he just had a growing veteran uh, community. And for us to build a brand-new medical center, it's about $900 to $1,000 a square foot, not to mention it takes almost 10 years to get it through the skip process, where we had somebody willing to give us a hospital. So we went down there. We looked at it, um, Rich, myself, his, his engineers, my engineers, and we were like, this is great. This is great. Yes, you you know, you've got some uh, mechanical, um, uh, electrical, plumbing uh, uh, requirements that upgrades that would be uh, required to be replaced over time. But if you look at getting into a donated hospital anywhere from four uh, to five hundred dollars a square foot vices, you know, nine to a thousand dollars a square foot, not to mention that we could do this in a matter of months. Um, that's what we jumped on. I will say it took a little bit of negotiation because, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure that all the engineering specialties uh, that came with me um, had their voice, they had their say, and we ended up accepting that um, hospital in April, right as COVID uh, kicked off. And and it, and uh, within 14 days of acceptance, it was built out. You had this cohesiveness across the department, the energy from everybody um, that we were able to provide healthcare services and decompress the VA uh, Medical Center Dallas veteran population during the pandemic. So, Karen, you were the chief acquisition officer. I was wondering, how did you collaborate and work with the other uh, components of VA, the Veterans Health Administration, the Veterans Benefit Administration, and, and Cemetery. How did you work with uh, your colleagues uh, in those areas uh, and the C-suite in general? Um, we had, I, I would say it, w- it wasn't a very um, solid relationship when I came on board. Um, I know Phil Christie, Phil's, Phil's my guy. Anytime I needed to socialize a new methodology and a new way of doing business, I'd say, hey, Phil, get out there and start socializing this. Because again, it goes back to that change management, building those relationships. Um, when you have a new leadership team that came on board, when Secretary Wilkie joined the VA along with Penn Powers, um, it's, it's about building those relationships, setting up those one-on-ones where I went out and um, personally spoke with Randy Reeves for um, the, um, the cemetery services. 
Randy, what do you need from us? Uh, being more of a better partner. His biggest thing was making sure that we were getting his uh, leases awarded so that he could we could start construction on any cemetery uh, renovations, expansions, and understanding the priorities. And, and again, it goes back to communications. Uh, if he came to me and said, Karen, I need this project. I need you to make it your number one priority. I need it moved ahead. I'd get the team together and I'd say, hey, let's make it happen. And I want you, um, like Dr. Brennan or Tony Costa, I need you to start having the one-on-ones and updating uh, Randy Reeves um, uh, every couple of weeks. Same thing with the benefits. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, he... Um, when he needed an acquisition strategy, say he got some new legislation, he generally pick up the phone and say, Karen, I need to have a quick meeting with you and um, whichever one of your acquisition centers are going to be working this specific acquisition for me. This is what I got. I need help. And then, of course, Rich Stone, I have to say, he was probably my number one partner. Everything we did. Um, I mean, he's got pretty much he's got two thirds of the department and the budget. So a, a lot of that Rich and I were um, always in lockstep of um, how can I have Help. That that's you know another thing. How can I help? How, what do you need from the acquisition community to support you? Karen, what advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service? I've spent my whole life in public service. Um, it's rewarding. It provides many opportunities for a variety of job series experiences, um, and, and it these are our future government leaders. Um, but Michael, I would also offer that um, I would probably tell the person first, if if you're not over a certain age, I encourage anyone to uh, serve their nation, uh, serve in uniform. You know, you've got five branches of um, government. Actually, I think we got six now with the Space Force. But you, you've got those branches of government serve as um, in uniform. Then when you become a veteran, when you, you know, you, you take off that uniform, you have a... a, a I'm not saying everybody doesn't have a greater respect, but when you've been um, active duty or you've been in the military and then you become a veteran, there's no better um, reward than a veteran serving veterans. Karen, uh, I want to thank you for joining me today, but more importantly, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you, Michael. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Karen Brazell former Chief Acquisition Officer at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.